Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the Sunday after Easter. Yeah. Um, Good to have you. My name is Derek. And for the next six Sundays, we're going to move through this little letter in the New Testament called the First John Letter. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open to that. And if you're looking for something to read over the next six weeks, then this is it. We post all the readings, by the way, that we'll be teaching through on our website uh, right on the front page uh, every Monday morning. So you can check that out and read what's coming up uh, for the next Sunday. But yeah, so that's where we're going to be. You guys excited? You're like, whatever, man, we're here. Uh, We'll just run with you. But here's here's the situation. Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday. Amen? So that's the end of that. So now we're going to move on to things more important, right? But if you were here, uh, you'll remember me telling you that resurrection isn't just this thing to point to and say, okay, well, that happened, or this thing to believe in, although it is those things and more. But it's this way of living, that God calls us uh, into this way of living, this resurrection life, both here and later. And so we're going to talk about that over the next six weeks, and basically, what is the kind of life that we're supposed to be living in response to Easter? So because of the resurrection, what kind of living and life does God want me to have and do? And so that's, if you're looking for like where we're going, that's the question we will orbit around every Sunday is simply, in light of the resurrection, what kind of day-to-day living is God looking for uh, from me? If you were here, who was here last Sunday, by the way? Okay, good. Okay, good. You came back. Um, We ended with two quotes from two very different historical figures. Uh, I want to bring those back up and start off today uh, with these. First, from uh, fourth-century Roman Emperor Julian, atheism bracketed Christianity, I'll explain that once again in a moment, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. Next slide. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain hope for the help that we should render them. So this is one man's observation of the first Christians, some of the first Christians, the early church. Uh, he calls them atheists. Let me just explain this again. It's a very odd thing for us because when we hear the word atheist, we just think all of those who don't believe in God. But essentially, this is what the Romans felt about the early Christians simply for two main reasons. One, they did not acknowledge, believe in, or worship the national gods. So therefore, if you don't acknowledge, worship, or believe in our gods, then you have no belief system. There's no system of faith for you, and so you're not theistic in any way. You're atheistic. But more importantly than that, they didn't have a temple. There was no central place of sacrifice or worship, at least not any longer. Most of the early church were converted Jewish people. And uh, the, t- the practice of going to the temple and offering sacrifices had faded. And so the church, the early church, had no central building, no central location where they worshiped because sacrifice was worship. So these people, this culture would say, if, where does your God live, A, and B, how do you worship if there's no place to offer sacrifice? How do you even begin to worship your God, and how do people find out about your God if there's no place for them to go and hear about it? But, so the early Christians believed and lived with this conviction 
that God had, had moved in and taken up residence in each of their lives, that the temple was no longer necessary because God has made our bodies, our lives, his temple. Paul says it this way in um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the what? The temple of the Holy Spirit, all right? So this is where God lives, in us. And so for the first Christians, worship wasn't like a place that you went to or a song that you sung or any sort of thing that you did with your church group. It was a life that you lived. So worship was understood not as some place, but it was a way of life, a way of living. And from one man's vantage point, this Emperor Julian, Christianity, and his, from his vantage point, his view, was a way of living and doing and being. When he looked out at the landscape of the religious world, and he's assessing what Christianity is amounting to at the time, it had to do with their acts of service and love and what they were doing. So we looked at that quote last week, and then uh, we also looked at our friend Steve Jobs. The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than what? And I've helped you out here. Living, say that word, living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. And so this, this is the other side of the coin, right? The first, the first quotation has this nice, positive, challenging, inspiring tone, but this is the other side of the coin, the tendency to forget that our day-to-day living has any sort of significance, that we've moved Christianity and our relationship with Christ simply into the beliefs category you know, a certain number of doctrines that we believe and follow and so forth, and it has become this privatized thing, and we forget that our day-to-day living has a lot of significance, and it matters. Hypocrisy and inconsistency of the Christians that you know may be the very reason that you're very hesitant to follow Christ or to be associated with the church. And so these two quotations give us a picture of like two sides. There's the, there's the side on which we see uh, the, the, the resurrection being lived out, and then there's the side where we see hypocrisy and inconsistency in, in, our, in our lives. If you look on the back of the bulletin, it says Easter week two, and I'll say this again, we're just going to sit in this for a few weeks Uh, Because resurrection, once more, isn't something that you, it's not just something you believe in, but it's a way of doing life in the world that you inhabit. And so again, over the next six weeks, we're going to move through uh, this letter of 1 John, and he essentially, and this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, and it begins in much the same way. Uh, If you look at the first few verses, it sounds just like the Gospel of John. And so, uh, but his whole mission in this letter is to push us towards a kind of life that God is looking for. If there is uh, a message of hope in the resurrection, it's simply that there is life after death, right? If there is a message of hope in the resurrection, it's that death doesn't have the last word, the final say. And there are many messages of the resurrection, but that's the one we know, and that's the one we cling to, and that's the one that gets us through all kinds of difficulties and trials and so forth, particularly when we've lost friends or family members or whatever. And so we, we can look beyond this life and have this hope of God's promise that there is life after this life. That's one of the biggest messages of hope in the resurrection, the Easter story. But if there's a problem with Easter, if there is such a thing, if there's a problem 
with the resurrection, it's this, is that we would be so distracted as followers of Christ, that we would be so distracted by our hope in life after death that we would not pay attention to and we would end up ignoring the way that we live out the life before the life after death. There is a life before life after death. Are you with me? I mean, are you breathing? You're in that, that's, you're in that part of the equation. There is a life that we have here and now, and there is a life after this life, And this life before our life after death is extremely important to God. The way we live our life here and now matters a great deal to God. Right? And this is what John gets at in this letter. And this is where we're going uh, beginning today. And just so you know from the start, this this, uh, series of teachings moves in the direction that the, the letter itself moves, which is towards love and service in the world. Living a life of love and service in the world. And John will get us there, but he starts, this first chapter begins in the worst possible place for us, with sin, struggle, the difficulty of living a consistent life. Like somehow before we even get to what it looks like to live the kind of life that God calls us to live, we have to first deal with ourselves. And that's a struggle. Um, Look at verses 5 through 10. I'm just going to read these very quickly, and I want to see if you notice a pattern. Uh, Verse 5 is the introduction to what you're going to hear. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Then verse 6, try and listen closely. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. You catch a pattern? No? All right, let me help you. We'll just do some Bible study here. Verse 6, what's the first word? If, third word, claim. All right, are you with me? All right, uh, verse 8, what's the first three words? If we claim, I'm going to help you out here. You're just sort of dying on me here. All right, verse 10, if we claim. What are we claiming? Go back to verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness. Verse 8, if we claim to be without, what, sin? Verse 10, if we claim that we have not, do you catch the repetition? I mean, John could have just said this in one line. We'll just put verse 8 on the screen, and we'll just leave it there for a minute. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This statement and, and statements like it appear three times in these verses. And the message is one that I think all of us agree with, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, is that a perfect life is not possible. Amen? It's just not possible. So before we even get into what this letter has to offer us, it begins with this reality check that none of us is perfect, that none of us can ever claim sinless perfection. And that's a, hopefully an encouragement to you. 
And, but it also bears the question, or it begs the question, what is sin? Like, what is that anyway? That seems to be the theme of the, the verse, the verses here. Like, if we claim that we aren't sinful, like, what is sin? What are those things that we would categorize as sin? One of the best definitions of sin comes from Romans 3, uh, 23. And it says this, for all have what? Sinned, and I've helped you out here, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Right? Have you heard this before? For all have sinned. That's all of us, by the way. And fall short of the glory of God. So it's this past tense, continual, you know, thing here. Like, we've all sinned, and we also continue to fall short of the glory of God. Now, one of the definitions for sin is, I think the Hebrew word for sin is essentially an archery term. And so it's the fact that the arrow doesn't make it to the target. Sin. And so Paul basically defines it. For all have sinned, and then here's the visual picture, it falls short of the target. It falls short of God. So it's a life that isn't quite living up to God's expectations, God's intentions, God's, God's purposes, and so on for his creation. So sin is this life that is well short of God. It's well short of his holiness. It's well short of everything that he has in mind for you and for me. So I think, does that make sense? And so sin, and, and underneath that category comes a lot of different things, for sure. A lot of behaviors, a lot of thoughts, a lot of situations that we should and shouldn't be in. But at the end of the day, the best definition is simply that life, my life, your life falls short continually of what God has in mind. And so we're kind of born into this world that's already broken. And so we're surrounded by not only temptations, but struggles and vices and all sorts of things like that. That continually sometimes trip us up, sometimes tempt us and lead us in different directions but we always fall short. But another thing that this verse does is it calls into question who it is that we're comparing ourselves to when we think about our life. See, when it comes to sin, we always compare downward. Like we look around at our friends and we say, well, I'm at least better than them. Right? I don't drink as much as them. I don't cuss as much as them. I don't sleep around as much as her. And we just look around at our friends and say, well, I'm at least a little bit better than that. Right? Are you with me on this? You don't want to admit it, but you're with me on this. This is why misery loves company. Because it just reminds you that, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm at least better off than this lowly person. But every time Jesus confronted people who sometimes thought of themselves as better than everyone, he would essentially say, not so much in these words, but in many different parables and teachings, you're comparing yourself to the wrong person. You're comparing yourself downward, which is what we do. You know the verse that says, bad company corrupts good character? You ever heard that? Maybe that's not just a verse and a statement and a truth about what happens in group settings, like you just end up sort of falling prey to pressures or whatever, but maybe also your character You sort of see yourself in a different way. Like if I'm surrounded by sinful people, then maybe the comparison is easier than this. 
But Paul reminds us that sin is about a comparison upward. Sin is about understanding that we fall short, not of some mentor's expectations that we have or some person in our life that exhibits great spiritual discipline. No, no, no. Sin is about a comparison upward, about falling short of God, not of somebody else. And so John hits this head on, saying, if you claim that you're living without sin, to claim to be without sin, then you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in us. One of the things to know about the first John letter is that he is speaking into a culture that's struggling with uh, certain sets of belief systems. And one of the things that's developing in the first century is this Gnostic approach to spirituality. Gnostic comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the two tenets of Gnosticism uh, late in the first century uh, are these. Number one, that all flesh, all material, all things that you can touch and feel are in and of themselves evil. And so what isn't evil is your soul. And so your soul is basically held prisoner to what is evil. This is why many Gnostics in history did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, because God would not put himself in a fleshly person, because that's evil, right? And along with that, the goal of a Gnostic was to escape, to get out of this world. This is where bluegrass music came from. This world is not my home, right? Whatever. I I tried that last week, and y'all didn't laugh either, but whatever. (laughs) First service got it, though. Um, because they're mourning people. But, so one of the things that you would seek to do was to essentially escape the physical realm. That's one of the tenets. But the other tenet of Gnosticism was that you could somehow achieve a spirituality at a certain level where you would no longer sin. You could reach a level of knowledge about yourself, about God, and about the universe that you could pass through temptation. That you could find yourself in a place where sin wasn't a struggle anymore. Now, normally, this is because you would just grow to accept sin. And therefore, you were above the fray. And so, John is attacking this idea head on. Saying, if you claim that you are without sin then you're deceiving yourself. And he says, including himself in this, the truth is not in us. He says, if you say you're without fault in your life, that you have beaten all your vices and struggles, then you are just simply not operating from a place of truth or reality or honesty. And so the entry into this letter is through the doorway of confession. I mean, John rolls into his letter by dragging us to the truth about our lives, that we are imperfect through and through. And even though, uh, and even if you're not a Christian, I mean, you can get on board with that reality that your life isn't perfect and you continually make mistakes. And look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, though. And keep in mind what we've just read. I mean, three times, no one is sinless, no one is sinless, no one is sinless. And he says, my dear children... I write this to you so that you will not what? Sin. No one is sinless, but don't sin. I mean, John's like a boxer. Look this way, look this way. Bam! Right? 
No one is sinless. No one is perfect. If you say that, you're crazy. You're arrogant. You're your own God. You're making your own rules up. Oh, by the way, don't sin. And when he says, so that you will not sin, it kind of destabilizes us. It catches us off guard because, like, how can that ever be possible? How can that ever be a reality for me? A few things. And these are just observations. Number one is this. I feel that everyone could agree with me on this in the room, but less brokenness is what we all desire. Right? When it comes to brokenness, pain, suffering, all of us desire less of that. And in a sense, John is speaking to the very thing that we want. Because I would assume that most of us in here are living with some sort of goal or hope that uh, of less brokenness in your life, of less separation from God, of less sin, as it were. I mean, am I close? I mean, there may be some of you who sin is your goal. <laughs> and so right on to you for that. Uh, revelation, if you read the verse in Revelation, where it says, I wish that you were hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Do you know this verse? I mean, it has more to do with a river, two rivers that come together, but there's this nice imagery of, look, if you're going to sin, I'd rather you just really go for it. (laughs) Martin Luther said these words, sin boldly. Like, don't pretend that you're not a sinner. Like, if you're going to be a sinner, then sin boldly. Be the best. Win the award for sin. Hey, when it comes to sin, I mean, there's no question. That person wins. So, taking the two or three of you in the room that are in that category out, like that's your goal in life, most of us would like less of that in our life. Most of us would want less regret over our decisions and behaviors, less brokenness in our relationships, less of a feeling of separation from God and his love. And so part of what John is saying here is just the thing that we all really want. I wish I could not sin. And so this phrase, so you will not sin, though we know it's far off and not possible really any, at any time, it seems right at least to hold it out there, if for no other reason than to remember that one day there will be a time when there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more war, no more injustice, no more death, no more sin, and that one day God will put the world back together again and restore everything, and that at the base level, until then, we move each day towards that promise in reality. Another thing, I think what John is getting at here is that this is about an overall approach to living. I mean, it begins with recognizing our own sense of struggle, our own sense of brokenness. And then he says, don't sin, but this is not to be taken like, I'm never going to sin again. But this is about an approach to living. Like, I don't want to sin again. Like, that's the approach. I don't want to be in that position again. That's different. Before I put this next slide up, I have a couple disclaimers because I don't want you to laugh at me. This is the cheesiest preacher thing I've ever put on a slide. (laughs) And I have some rules before we put this up here. Do not tweet this and tag my name on it. (laughs) 
do not put this on Facebook and tag my name on it. And do not laugh. In fact, I'm going to make you say amen instead, all right? So this is why, because it rhymes. And I just, I don't do this. Like, I don't make things rhyme. Um, (laughs) And so that being said, this slide, before we put it up, I mean, just that's all the disclaimer you're going to get. But this is the best thing that I could think of to sort of describe what John is trying to say to us about life, about sinlessness, about our own condition, etc. And so when it comes up, I'm going to read it to you, and then you're going to say amen, and then we're just going to pretend like it never happened. And um, are you ready? All right, this is it. Ready? Here we go. Direction, not perfection. Amen? Now, say it with me, like a church. Okay, ready? Direction, not perfection. It's cheesy, isn't it? But it's, it's good. It, it, it rhymes, but it also speaks truth about what this is about. Look, you're not going to be perfect, but at least head that direction. Like the other thing, the other extreme would be, and you don't need to turn there, I'll just uh, do it for you very quickly, but uh, the other extreme would be in Romans uh, 6, where Paul asked this question, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is the misunderstanding of grace. Like people are like, well, I mean, we don't want to let grace go to waste. So let's just keep that thing pumped. Are you with me on that? I mean, we don't, we don't want to let God like not be allowed to use his grace. That's what he's made up of. So let's just keep that thing, let's keep those muscles working. So evidently, these people are asking this question, like, what's the point of trying to live a better life, a sinless life, when there's grace to be had? Like, what's the point? So Paul asked that question, and though perfection isn't possible, it is a target, and it is something to shoot for, and I'm in touch with my own brokenness and sin. But the key here and what John is encouraging us to do is to not lose hope there. Don't lose hope in the reality of your own condition. Don't do that. Keep moving forward in light of God's promise that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, very familiar verse to many of you, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen. And that old is gone, new has come is a continual thing. It's a constant recreating of who you are, that God is constantly at work in you. And as you continue to follow him and trust him, you're always being made new. His mercies are new every morning, not one time, but all the time. And so there's this continual recreation happening, this uh, consistency in moving forward, always trying to be born again, as it were, to keep growing, to keep working towards perfection, even though you know you're not going to get there. Or to quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, he not busy being born is busy dying. Make sense? Move towards perfection. And who is perfect? God. And again, though perfection isn't possible, I keep moving towards it, knowing that grace and mercy 
are the guardrails of the journey. And that he continually walks with me. This quote from a 19th century uh, Russian philosopher Tolstoy is, is extraordinary. Attack me, he says, I do this myself. But attack me rather than the path I follow, in which I point out to anyone who asks me where I think it lies. If I know the way home and I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I'm staggering from side to side? That's a good picture of this text. No one is perfect. No one is sinless. But move that direction. Stagger if you must. But keep moving in the direction of God. And again, it's not a version of, oh, well, he'll forgive me. I'll just do whatever. It's a continual prayer every morning to move in the right direction. Now, there is an escape hatch here. Look in the second part of verse 2 of chapter 2. John says, but if anybody does sin, and you can insert laughter there. I mean, after all this that he said, you know, if we claim, if we claim to be without sin, et cetera, et cetera, oh, and don't sin, oh, and if you do sin, thank you. He says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's an escape hatch here, once again, of God's grace and mercy. But it doesn't, he doesn't say that before he challenges us with the most difficult challenge of Scripture, which is that we stop sinning. Does that make sense? It's the balance between knowing that there's grace when we fail, but trying with God's mercy and strength to live the kind of life that he wants me to live. What does this mean practically? Because that's all good lunch conversation, but what does this mean practically? I think it means assessing your tendencies with sin and essentially developing a strategy to get out of it. Because sin is basically a pattern, a repeated cycle of things that you do, places you go. And I think the best not cure because you're always going to struggle with it, but one of the best attacks is to just really own up to what it is that isn't right with you and develop a strategy to get out. Let's talk about addiction just for a second because this is a good way of understanding this. Some of you may struggle with addiction. Some of you may have certain things that hold you prisoner, and um, it, you feel trapped, you feel very stuck, and yet you love Jesus. And this creates so much conflict in you because you come into a room like this, which is supposed to be a room of, of worship and hope and encouragement and freedom, and yet you feel a tremendous amount of guilt because underneath everything, there's this deep-seated struggle with a cycle of addiction. And so you come into the room every week hoping to be encouraged and you end up feeling very guilty and sinful. However, I think the addiction 
really isn't the sin in your situation. The sin is the pride not to take the steps to get out of it. That's the sin. There's always a sin beneath the sin beneath the sin. The sin is usually a symptom of something else. But maybe it's not an addiction. Maybe it's just things that you're messing with and toying with. And at first it might be the thing that's the sin, but eventually it's not the sin that's the sin. It's the sin of not wanting to get out. That's the sin. The sin of becoming settled into a life of just acceptance of what used to be the sin, but is now the symptom of the sin. And the sin is the pride not to take even a small step in the right direction to get help and to break free. Does this make sense? So maybe that takes a little bit of an edge off of whatever it is that you're stuck in. Like, I feel guilty every time that happens. That's not the problem. And God isn't keeping score of how many times you go here or look at this or drink that or smoke this or do this. It's the underlying issue of not wanting to take the right steps. Part of dealing with sin is learning to, uh, I love how Psalm 103 says this, that you satisfy my desires with good things. In other words, our desires sometimes lean towards bad things, 